fixing leaky cloud data, PCI's incoming contactless standard, and just what is zero trust. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. Not every cloud has a silver lining, particularly when it pertains to the accidental leaking of sensitive data stored in the cloud. Unfortunately, as more and more organizations rely on cloud storage, the opportunities for accidental exposure also increase. To tell us more, is ISMG's executive editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz. Too many organizations have a bad habit. They store sensitive or regulated data in the cloud, and they accidentally leave it exposed to everyone. This past summer, for example, several unsecured Amazon S3 buckets belonging to IT services firm Attunity left at least one terabyte of data exposed. In particular, files from organizations such as Ford, TD Bank, and Netflix were publicly accessible. It seems like barely a day goes by without some new accidental cloud data exposure coming to light. Most of the breaches I'm seeing, certainly in AWS, which is not AWS's uh, fault either, is S3 buckets. Data accidentally exposed. That's Stephen Owen, CISO of Britain's Bourne Leisure Group. They were initially secured, but then suddenly, for, for example, the DevOps might be under pressure. They've accidentally deployed a script, which exposes millions and millions of records. Why do so many organizations continue to expose data? For answers, I talked to James Spiteri, a cybersecurity specialist at Elastic, which builds Elastic Search. Members of organizations, they spin up new services, they might not be too familiar with them. In a cloud instance, whatever cloud provider that may be, and in an effort to make that available, they, without, most of the time without wanting to, they expose themselves to the entire internet. Despite big data storage options having security controls, however, big data exposure is still happening. This isn't usually, you know, someone's intention. This is the problem. Like, uh, sometimes it happens because not many people are fully aware of how the internet functions. Other times it happens because they're rushed into doing something and they just bypass all the security features. So there's, there's many reasons why this happens. And uh, unfortunately, it had, can have uh, catastrophic effects like we've seen. Big data risks big breaches. And that's a no-no, especially in this era of the EU's General Data Protection Regulation as well as the California Consumer Privacy Act. But while many organizations have gotten the privacy message, they haven't necessarily translated this into their cloud data storage and security practices. Here's Owen. I think privacy is gaining traction. Cloud security is a lot, lot harder. You know, finding cloud security architects are like finding unicorns. Speaking as a CISO, Owen recommends that all cloud-using organizations put in place at least basic security controls. Here's where to start. Awareness, education, and getting the foundations right. So in, in Cloudland, there's a, certainly in AWS, there's a pat, we call it patterns. Design now how you design things. And one is a landing zones. And a landing zone is how you set up your accounts. And also from your top account is you try and prevent capabilities. So you try and prevent it happening. And we call it SCP. It's a, it's like a control framework of what each sub-account can do. So if they can't deploy or make something public, that's good. You're preventing it in day one and putting those disciplines. Elastic's Spiteri 
says Elasticsearch now includes built-in security features in its free basic version, including such things as encryption and access controls. He says Elastic did this in part to help users better prevent inadvertent data exposure. But organizations still need to enable these features and to take some other basic security steps. If you don't need an Elasticsearch cluster or a Kibana, which sits in front of Elasticsearch to be exposed to the internet, then don't have it that way. By default, Elasticsearch instance is not available to anything else other than the host that it's running on, say local host. If you don't need to change that, then don't. There are, of course, cases where that, that needs to be done, but then you need to make sure you've taken the appropriate security steps, like enabling the default security options, turning on encryption, which is just as important, so it's not just about slapping a password on there. You need to make sure you have the right level of encryption as well, just in that, so your password isn't intercepted. So you need to make sure that it's not just any old random password. If you turn on security and you put in a terrible password, then it's very ineffective. To be sure, stopping big data breaches requires some common-sense security policies and controls, but given the threat posed by big, bad breaches, it's a no-brainer for organizations that use the cloud to ensure they have these in place. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. In December, the PCI Security Standards Council plans to publish a new standard for solutions that enable tap-and-go transactions on merchant smartphones and other commercial off-the-shelf or COTS mobile devices. The standard will be called PCI Contactless Payments on COTS or CPOC. I spoke with Troy Leach, CTO of the Council, about CPOC and specifically one thing that isn't included, pin entry. Here's Troy to explain why. First of all, you know, the PCI Council is committed to protecting uh, and maintaining the integrity of PIN data. And we have, as you know, the PIN data security standard. We have uh, several standards that uh, a primary focus of them is to protect PIN as it's being used to authenticate a transaction. And PCI will continue to do that. But one of the best advantages of PIN is to authenticate uh, several aspects of that payment transaction from the cardholder to the device to several qualifications of the payment itself to complete a transaction. And with this new technology, it provides this opportunity for us to really improve upon that. And given the amount of additional data that's available to us, available to us in real time, we can start to rethink how we authenticate a transaction. So for the contact the standard, uh, there are multiple security controls that have a strong association between the merchant and the device and protect against the application itself that is accepting the transaction, making sure that it's not lifted up and moved to a different uh, device. So we have controls around making sure that once a application is initiated, that the security um, it, it cannot be spoofed and, and brought to another device. So there's all these other new types of controls that we can put in place that allow for the same level of confidence in authenticating the transaction. If there's one buzzword or buzz phrase that is reaching pandemic proportions in cybersecurity marketing collateral, it's zero trust. It may also be one of the most misunderstood. At an ISMG roundtable dinner held in New York last week, Myself and Jack Coons of the event sponsor Unisys 
attempted to unpack just what is zero trust with 20 or so cybersecurity professionals from the New York City area. Jack comes with a fairly unique perspective. He currently serves as technology evangelist and chief cybersecurity strategist with Unisys Corporation, but his background is as a 25-year United States Department of Defense full-spectrum cyber warfare officer, whose globally spanning operational assignments include service within the US national intelligence, special operations, and cyber communities. In short, he has some unique perspectives and literal war stories to share. Following the rather animated roundtable discussion, I had the chance to sit down with Jack to recap on the evening's conversation, and I asked him to answer that one critical question. Just what is zero trust? Here he is. It depends, right? The lens by which you approach this problem set of cybersecurity, um, especially when it comes to zero trust, really depends on where you sit. And I think what was really interesting um, by the way you asked questions at the dinner, uh, you know, we had a, a rather diverse crowd, but it slanted heavy towards the fintech community. But even within the financial or fintech community, financial technology, financial security community, even they had kind of a difference of opinion on what it means. And so some of the things, some of the common themes that came out of that was, you know, risk. You know, what is your risk appetite, right? Because if you literally take the definition of zero trust, which means on its face, I trust nothing, right? Obviously, in the world of cybersecurity, you, you can't just simply lock down a network to the point where you've stopped the supported business model, right? Security doesn't exist in and of itself. It's there to support the underlying business model. Indeed, security done right is actually meant to enhance and speed the business model. Now, that sets up a dynamic tension. But again, getting back to what is zero trust, in the world of, say, for example, my, my current employer, Unisys Corporation, you know, we work globally with any number of business units. They could be national security, they could be government, they could be small mom and pop organizations, um, financial information, nuclear secrets, you know, the, the whole gamut of the who's who in the cyber zoo. So somebody that's protecting or entrusted with national security secrets, zero trust is going to mean something different to them than, say, somebody who's running a coffee shop, right? Obviously, security is important to both of them, but the amount of risk appetite is going to be very different. The amount of expenditure available to each of those entities is going to be different, right? So if we back up there for a minute and unpack uh, your original question, you know, what is zero trust? What does it mean to me? I have to go back to my my background, you know, so as a 25-year retired cyber warfare officer, you know, in the world of DOD, we had this concept back in the late 90s, early 2000s of, of, of trust zones, right? And that was based on this early understanding of the weaponization and utilization of cyberspace as a maneuver warfare domain, right? Not something that your typical business unit would understand, although today everyone understands that the Internet has become a fully contested environment. But back in the day, you know, 20 years ago, we were still coming to grips with how to operationalize this new domain as a means of exploitation. 
one of the things that became very apparent to us is that we were very quickly going to run out of free space that could be trusted. The uh, kind of tragedy of the commons, if you will, you know, kind of like we see with the seafaring domain. You know, once your ship leaves safe harbor, it's out in the ocean. Once it's out in the ocean, it is responsible for its own defense until it gets to the next safe harbor. Well, that's kind of the same way we need to approach network security. But how do you do that? So this notion of trust zones really started to kind of get going back then. But it was kind of, you know, kind of kept to the folks within DOD. Then along comes a guy named, as most people are probably aware of, John Kinderbeg, who was at the time a VP and a senior researcher over at uh, Forrester Research. And he kind of really kind of got to grips with the commercialization and operization, if you will, of what he now referred to as zero trust, the zero trust architectural model. And, and really what that means is it was, if you think about it like this, an understanding that your data is going to leave the safety of on-premises where you can kind of keep close hold on it and you're going to let that data go wherever it needs to go to on your existing infrastructure and co-opting commercial infrastructure to transit some very scary places to get to where it has to go, whether another business unit or an end user. So zero trust really became a way of looking at that holistic presentation of the architecture in such a way that the data had to be responsible for its own security because you simply couldn't trust the underlying infrastructure that it was going to transit on with the understanding that you had to go on, you had to use it. That's it for this week's ISMG security report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.